1: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Hello, I'm Stephen.
1: I'm Alpha. I'm Anish.
2: And in a first for the New Statesman podcast, we are a hybrid podcast this week with Ian Alva coming from our podcast catacomb and Anoush coming from wherever Anoush is coming from. We discuss the future of the office. No, we just dis- we discuss um, the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, what that means for the Conservatives and Batley and Spen and what that means for Labour. And we also discuss the Liberal Democrats and lean mean fighting by-election winning machine. The Liberal Democrat victory in the Chesham and Amersham by-election has triggered a sort of host of internal Tory recrimination, blame, debate about what they've got wrong, what they need to change, and also the world's... Funniest article slash Twitter thread from the defeated candidate Peter <laughs> Fleet, which really is just kind of like if, if you haven't seen it, you really should seek it out. It's kind of if someone wanted to do the sort of very model of graceless losering, it's it's beautifully done.
0: It's very that that thing in Come Dine with Me the, you know what a sad little life Jane. Um, <laughs> it now now explains why he was <laughs> kept away from journalists during the campaign. <laughs> Actually, I'm quite ha- I'm, like grateful to him for writing it because it's a helpful insight into what you know he as the candidate felt were problems on the ground some of it may be less accurate than others because I think he's a little bit traumatized having felt quite entitled to win there clearly in terms of what the factors were in Cheshire and Amersham, which is now, I think, what we're going to have discourse on forever. I mean, I suppose you have to begin with all the caveats that by-elections just are different and people can take them as an opportunity to give the incumbent government a kicking. And there are local issues people are annoyed about HS2 but i think like with those caveats in mind ultimately i think the conservatives should be quite worried about not doing anything to tackle the post-brexit cultural and political realignment that they themselves have sought that you know they've been seeking the votes of traditionally labour brexit voting voters in the north of england in labour heartlands you know, for for a long time, all of their discourse has been directed towards that. That thing that Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat leader, has been saying about leaving their rear flank open for attack, is just completely true. I think that it maybe wouldn't take too much to stem some of that by changing some policies. But I think it was just... It really, really was my experience in Cheshire and Amersham that people were testifying to this feeling of drift from their party way more than I would have expected. So I, I think that that is, is the main thing. I don't know if you, if you agree.
2: Yeah, I think what I think is interesting is obviously um, we sort of bookended our visiting of the constituency. You went right near the end and I went right near the start. I mean, actually before the start, books, before we knew what the date of the by-election would be. And it was really clear to me when i got back right and as i said last week it felt like whitney whether it was really clear that the conservative vote was incredibly soft can we just pause to whine about this weird sort of consensus among parts of the lobby that no one saw this coming i feel everyone who went down came back saying yeah it could happen
0: yeah Uh, i mean and i'm not even blowing my own horn here having written a piece about the by-election there it meant that i read all the other ones (laughs) You know, The Guardian had a good report. The FT had a good report. I think that maybe people think that if a piece of reporting doesn't have a sudden, you know, rather subjective prediction from the otherwise voiceless journalist, um, they feel like it hasn't been predicted. But, I mean, I feel like a lot of reports baked in the mood from Cheshire and Amersham, not, not just from the New States but actually a lot of places. I think maybe it's more that columnists weren't making much hay out of it rather than the reporting.
2: Yeah. I, I think the interesting thing is it felt to me, um, in words I'm gonna plagiarise from a I'm gonna to attribute to this concept MP because they listen to the podcast, um, then it felt to me when I got back, yeah, I got back to Westminster, so I've just been interested in Amsterdam, and they said, God, our vote feels like um pushing a door that's rotted. Yeah, they yeah, kind of in a yeah, when like it's got into the damp's got into the wood and you're like, oh, oh this this would not need a particularly big kick to go through. And I think they should be worried about the not needing a particularly big kick aspect. The flip side of that, of course, is that in many ways this by-election was sort of the difficulty turned all the way down to casual for the Liberal Democrats in that none of their normal election problems are going to apply, right? They were able to properly resource it in a way that, okay, they had lots of money at the last election, but I think um, it feels unlikely to me, although I imagine we'll get into this in part two, that the people who wanted to give money to a progressive thing not called the Tories, who used to give money to Labour, weren't going to give money to Jeremy Corbyn, won't by 2023 be giving money to the Labour Party again. There are a variety of reasons why that might not be the case, but I think it's therefore unlikely the Lib Dems will have the riches that they enjoyed in 2019. So... The stuff about resourcing will be more difficult in a, in a real election, and also, of course, the stuff about Labour. Now, several Lib Dems, uh, Monica Harding, the defeated candidate in Esher Walton, who obviously came very close to beating Dominic Raab, and on boundaries would have beaten uh, Dominic Raab if, if it were held on on the new boundaries, you know, you tweeted, Keir Starmer made a huge difference here, and, and there wasn't the fear of, of Labour, which, as long-time readers will know, are... are I have long been of the view that the Labour leadership's position and how it is perceived in the Libcom battleground is more important than the Labour leader, but I kind of think ultimately in a by-election the reason why Jeremy Corbyn is not a factor, just as he wasn't in Richmond in 2016, wasn't in Brecon in 2019, and then very much was in both those elections uh, a factor in the parliamentary seat when they need to try and hold on to it in a general election, is because obviously as much as the Tories do try to do a vote for the Lib Dems, you wake up with Jeremy Corbyn, people know that's not how a by-election works. Now at the moment Keir Starmer's failure mode is then he has no flavour, no vibe. No one really knows what he's about. They announce, you know, policies and never come back to them, which is bad for the Labour Party, but for the Lib Dems, it's great, right? Because no one is scared of no flavour, right? So all of those things won't be true, uh, whether it's because Keir Starmer has improved and acquired a flavour or been replaced by someone who will have a flavour. All of those things won't be present next time. But it is worth remembering that, They don't have to be as present as they were in Cheshire and Amersham for Steve Bryan in Winchester to have all sorts of problems, for Dominic Raab to have all sorts of problems. For all of these places, yeah, I mean, for I'm going to get my Cambridgeshire seats confused, Uh, apologies, apologies in advance. I'm just going to cheat and go Heidi Allen's old seat, where they came really close when Heidi Allen didn't want to stand with a fresh a Liberal Democrat candidate who will, I assume, be a Liberal Democrat candidate next time around. They'll surely get the extra mile there again. So I think they are right to worry about all that stuff. I think the interesting thing here is, in terms of that Tory anxiety, is the risk that the majority gets nibbled away next time. They just go, oh, that part doesn't count as being in, you know, that bit. And it is, as we said during at the time, I think it is more worrying the places that didn't vote Tory in England in, in May 21 than the places which didn't vote Labour, Lib Dem or Green. Because if you weren't going to vote Tory at the height of the vaccine rollout, when it was, you know, going fast, faster than Europe, when the sun was out, we were all able to what are the circumstances in which you are going to give Boris Johnson credit for anything? Uh, but Anoush, I, I was thinking a lot then some of this is very much the stuff you've been covering in, you know, places like Banbury for a long time. And obviously, uh, Banbury still has a Conservative MP. So, um, What, if anything, do you think Cheshire and Amersham means?
1: I think that's a really important question because for a while now I've been covering the sort of decline and crumbling of the public realm in places in the UK where, you know, which don't get as much coverage for elements of cuts and deprivation and things like that. So, you know places in Somerset where everyone was voting Tory where all their children's services had been cut all at once and um you know the roads were in really poor condition um you know, the last bank from the village had disappeared and, and these kind of stories and um some of the places that I looked were around Buckinghamshire and oxfordshire into the state of the roads and you know everyone who I spoke to there who you know weren't political politically that loyal would be saying things like you know a government can can stand and fall on the state of the roads because you know this is what people notice in their day-to-day lives and they feel like they're being neglected by their local council which in these kind of shire areas has has always been a conservative council and obviously that kind of support we saw falling away in the local elections there were losses in cambridgeshire and hertfordshire Kent, Surrey, Oxfordshire, Tunbridge Wells, they lost overall control over the council there. And then you mentioned Whitney, Stephen, and Chipping Norton, which, which went to Labour, and that's kind of David Cameron country. Um, and so there is there is a pattern going on. How much of that can be attributed to the crumbling of the public realm um, and basically the cuts from the councils that have fallen heavily on these areas but just haven't had as much of the limelight as the sort of Labour cities that have highlighted these issues for such a long time is questionable because I think there's so many other trends playing out that there's a big problem with social mobility in in some of these places. So the Chilterns are some of the worst uh, places for, for social mobility in the whole of England, and there's a similar issue in Somerset as well. And so I think there are some of those people who are more conventionally left behind in some of these constituencies as well. And you know, speaking to local Labour parties in sort of no hope seats, like in them, um, I went to Maidenhead, which is Theresa May's constituency. Speaking to local Labour parties there, they do feel like there are wards in these places that they can be working hard. And you can imagine, you know, if the if the if the Labour Party does sort of turn its sights onto trying to make a bit more mayhem in the blue wall for the for the Conservative Party, there is an element of potential there. Obviously, you have the local issues in Chesham and Amersham, which are replicated in other similar areas about planning and, and HS2 and in general, you know, sort of redevelopment of the town centres and things like that, as was happening in, as was the plan in Tunbridge Wells. Um, but you also, I think, Alva's right, you have this feeling of exasperation with the Conservative Party for all sorts of things, not just Brexit, but Boris Johnson, you wrote that piece, Stephen, about how support for, for Boris Johnson Is shallow among Tory MPs. I'd argue that it's quite shallow among the voters but also the Conservative Party members um, in some of these places. I haven't been to Chesham and Amersham to do any reporting but I did go to Beaconsfield in 2019 during the Tory leadership election which is next door um, to Chesham and Amersham to speak to the biggest Conservative Association there Um, and I spoke to other big Major conservative associations in the South, including Heidi Allen's old seat in South Cambridgeshire. And the constant refrain was, you know, at best grudging support for Boris Johnson because they thought that, you know, he might be popular with the country. But really, there was so much more enthusiasm for the other candidates. And there was so much skepticism about Boris Johnson and the way that he does politics and his character. And I think although the conservatives have had a lot of success with with the with the vaccine program and and um, and of course <laughs> winning the election in 2019 though boris johnson's flaws have been have been exposed a great deal recently, what with uh, sort of infighting over the COVID-19 response, some of the things that he's you know reported to have said during that time, and sort of the cavalier and, and chaotic attitude that has kind of been exposed by the government's, um, many of the government's COVID-19 policies. I'm not saying that they got they've got everything wrong, but there, there have been a lot of mistakes that I think uh, feed into that opinion of the, of the type of people, the type of voters and the type of Tory members that I spoke to two years ago, uh, of this of this image of, of Boris Johnson. And you can see some of that coming out in the things that um, Tory MPs have been saying um, in the wake of the Cheshire and amersham defeat. So I would say that that shallow support for Boris Johnson doesn't just stop at, at the Conservative Party, there is some of that feeling in these um, so-called blue wall seats. And Alva, I don't know whether, because you, you, you spoke to some voters that I remember reading in your piece who, who were saying, you know, I'm fed up with Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock and the lot of them kind of thing. I don't know whether that was kind of a, was that a sort of theme in the people that you were speaking to there?
0: Yeah, completely. And then it's hard from, you know, when people give an account of their personal political journeys, it's hard to separate out what exactly they mean when they say something like, Oh, I'm not going to vote Tory this time even though I've, you know, I've been a lifelong conservative. I, you know, it all started with the Brexit thing. Do they mean, you know, I feel culturally alienated from the Conservatives because this is a Leave party and I was a Remainer, or do they mean I didn't like the way Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings did business during the Brexit thing? or both, and is it part of the same problem? You know, Boris Johnson is incredibly popular (laughs) in general, but there are plenty of certainly conservative voters or former conservative voters who find the way he does business a bit distasteful, and, and layering the sort of the bigger cultural realignment stuff on top, I think, doesn't help. In terms of what they can do about it, it's interesting because it, we've all just described it in terms of a softness or a shallowness. It's it, you know these people are still weak conservatives to to a degree, and so I think you know conservative MPs. We've talked about planning reforms already the Liberal Democrats made a big thing out of planning in this by election. Weirdly when I was out with them, it didn't really come up with voters or they I think people on doorsteps didn't bring it up. It was the Lib Dems who brought it up to them and leveraged it quite effectively as a as an example of the Conservatives taking them for granted there. So I think that the way it's described as a big issue in that by election is true, but I think that it wasn't necessarily organically on voters' minds as much as you would maybe think. But I think that Conservative MPs would view planning reforms as the main way in which voters and indeed Conservative MPs feel neglected by Boris Johnson and his government at the moment, Um, and they would probably like to see some changes on that. So I think that Conservative MPs would like to see changes on planning, but they're also raising issues like the aid budget um, which is you know i mean the cut to the aid budget is popular in general but i think that they feel it has alienated a particular kind of conservative voter i think it's things like that where they would like to just change the mood or the the messaging i think stephen's looking exasperated but and then and then just a the final thing um, in terms of maybe i think what they could do and what the chat has been certainly um There's a real feeling that the Conservatives had never worked that seat very hard before, um, that when they began campaigning, they didn't really have the data. Um, And it got too late in the campaign. By the time that they were actually knocking on doors and checking on their vote, people had already switched, Um, supposedly... When Theresa May visited, she was there on the night before the by-election and, and the day itself. I think she maybe visited at other points, but apparently she was really, really surprised by how bad the campaign had been there. And I think so in terms of, you know, conservative complacency, I think there's a, quite a tangible example that's also quite fixable, that the Conservatives fought a really hard campaign in Hartlepool and they didn't really put in that work in Cheshire and Amersham until quite late in the day.
2: Yeah, sorry, the, so the reason why I was looking exasperated, um, so to let people behind there, we have um Anoosh appearing virus a sort of HAL style distance link, well out Anusha's actually just a laptop. Yeah. Um but uh was then when when Alvin you rightly said about the foreign aid budget, I kind of um the I one of the things which always annoys me is when politicians and, you know, kind of their outriders talk about oh, the policies are popular or the policy is unpopular because the crucial thing about the foreign aid vote, right, is yes, if you poll it A majority of people are pro it. But do you know what? In every election I have covered, I have never met anyone who has changed their vote to support foreign aid cuts. It's what political scientists call salience, right? So to take an example of something which Labour would be doing much better if it were salient, but candidly, I don't see how it will be. Even in sort of their worst sets of polling this year, Keir Starmer has a 10 to 15 point lead on better at working with other countries, right? So if for some reason, something were to happen in foreign affairs, then suddenly meant people in the next election were going, wow, the really important thing is, is working with other countries closely, then that would become a big problem. Now, because that, I think, is quite unlikely to happen, I don't think that's particularly useful for the Labour Party. But I think the mistake that the Conservatives have got into with stuff like international development is then it's this kind of thing of going, oh, well, 60% of people support it, 40% of people oppose the foreign aid cut, therefore... This is a, a really easy political proposition. But there are clearly a bunch of people who, you know, quite like David Cameron, who, you know, do like the foreign aid card, who who kind of, they have sort of kind of what I think of as modern social conservative um, views. So they like the David Cameron did same sex marriage. They really don't like when the prime minister. Uh, had his girlfriend in Downing Street for such a long period of time, has mul- had, had, has had multiple wives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? They have kind of yeah modern English social conservative views, and then they don't like the foreign aid cart because you know they have like they had like a make poverty history lanyard at their church or whatever. Right? And for all of those people, it's a salience shock essentially. Right? It's a thing which goes right. This has made all of these objections you have more salient and that has changed your vote but i do think that the interesting vulnerability is that if the labour party decides actually look this boundary chain has created a bunch of new tory held marginals in the south there are seats which moved towards us in 2019 and, and even more seats which moved to world just in 2017 and had a smaller than average national swing against us in 2019. If they do that and they go, what's our salient shock, right? What's our equivalent of Brexit? I think things like international development, but also the more kind of broad what um, one MP described to me this morning as the red wallification of the party where everything's like oh well how does that play in the red wall and they said you know we have this weird thing where we take an issue which no one in the red wall cares about which really offends my constituents and we go oh it's therefore good politics and i said well they said it's just not good politics. they said for example what is the evidence that people in the seats in the north and midlands and the conservatives won this time want more of their young people to be able to move down south They, they they said look you know, candidly what is the argument here they said because I know what my argument for why I don't want any more young people moving into my constituency, but it doesn't feel to me that we that we've really done the due diligence here. And I think all of that stuff is is interesting, but for it to work uh, in a way that is painful for the Conservatives, the opposition parties need to be willing to lean into it. And this is a big, I think, validation of Ed Davey, who you know ran explicitly on on leaning into it, faced you know loads of sort of. Yeah, attacks on the idea that he wouldn't be able to squeeze the Labour and Green vote because he'd been a Secretary of State in the Conservative-Liberal-Democrat coalition. There are basically about 1,500 holes in that theory. That's the combined number of votes the Greens and Labour between them got. Yeah, the Lib Dem by-election machine could do what it has always been able to do. So I think it basically does depend on, yeah, it shows there's a vulnerability. What it doesn't show us is is it going to be something that the big parties lean into the big parties lean into and is it uh, going to be as painful in an election in which those difficult questions for the Lib Dems of you know are you a wasted vote who's going to be the next prime minister are all in play in a way they obviously aren't in a by election
1: if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
2: So now it's time for a section we like to call
0: You Ask Us.
2: There's a theme to many of this week's questions. I'm just going to go for for, for all of them. Uh, Luca has, Will Keir Starmer go if Labour loses the Batley and Spen by-election? Mark goes with, Should Keir Starmer resign if he loses Batley and Spen? And Rory goes with, what are Labour's prospects in the Batley and Spend by election? And are calls for Keir Starmer's resignation too premature? And then uh, a bunch of other anonymous people have asked some variation on that theme. So, Alva, would you like to go first?
0: So I knew that we were going to be discussing this. And I suppose last week I enjoyed having a break from the Labour Party for a week. J- Stephen made a comment when we were recording the last podcast afterwards. He said something like, oh, you've really, really had your ready break. And I was thinking about it. And I think it was that I really benefited from a week off from the Labour Party. It was just so nice. Just only Tories and Lib Dems and some Greens. Um, really like, you know, because a change is as good as a rest. I felt revived. so. I just quickly messaged some Labour MPs to see what they are thinking about the Keir Starmer thing, having had my week off. And I think the thing that's really striking is, I mean, we can maybe park the question of whether Keir Starmer should resign if Labour loses badly in Spen, which they are definitely worried is a real possibility at the moment. But the question of whether he will seems like people think no. And interestingly, I mean, the answer that one person gave me one Labour MP, is that they don't think that there's an obvious successor. And really what's interesting about that is that that person was one of the people who was absolutely furious about the sacking of Angela Rayner when that happened. So this is someone who you would designate as like squarely Team Angela. And I might have expected to be one of the people hoping that maybe she would make a, a leadership bid if Keir Starmer stood down. But I think if even a Labour MP like that is thinking of it as unlikely, then maybe, I mean, that there could be an element of spin going on there. But I think if even, you know, the Team Rainer people think that it's quite unlikely, then I think maybe it is. I mean, isn't that the general wisdom in Labour, that it's very hard to get a Labour leader to step down?
2: Anush, um, what would your sort of opening bid on, on these many questions be?
1: It's, it's difficult to tell. I'm, I, I've am i been trying to speak to the Labour campaign in Batley, or at least trying to set up a conversation with them because I'm off to go and report on the seat tomorrow. It's been particularly difficult, actually, to set anything up. Um, same
0: for the Tory campaign. Which is quite revealing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's quite revealing because I think I'd say, and I hope that this isn't too presumptuous, but... I've covered a lot of by-elections and um, election campaigns while being a new statesman journalist. And usually I'd say it's relatively likely that, you you know, you will get a nice welcome reception from the Labour candidate in whatever race you're going to go and cover. And you're usually allowed to sort of go and shadow them uh, door knocking and and speak to them and, and their team. And that's been quite difficult to sort of pin down with this particular reporting trip, which does say a lot. I think. Um, the only time that's happened to me before is in marginal seats during the 2019 general election campaign which was clearly because they didn't want a journalist to come and hear everyone slamming the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn on on the doorstep in a seat that they were desperate to try and hold down. So I would suggest that there is actually a fear that they are going to lose it. And it's not just um, expectations management, which, you know, lots of parties do indulge in ahead of tight uh, by-election races so that if they lose, they can sort of say, well, you know, this is what we expected. It's disappointing, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or if they win, they can say, oh, you know, actually, it's a better result than we expected and the doomsayers were wrong. So I I, I do think that there is an issue for Labour in the seat, but obviously I haven't done my reporting there yet. And uh, once I've done that, I will fill you in on the podcast more. But in terms of Keir Starmer's prospects, if they do lose the seat, I mean, as you say, it's very difficult for the Labour Party to get rid of the leader, if 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 they want to, as we saw with Jeremy Corbyn and the sort of so-called coup against him, which which didn't result in in a new leader, exasperation among many MPs aside, I don't feel like there is that kind of appetite for complete sort of the the chaos of a leadership election. And uh, infighting being the main story about the Labour Party for the entirety of summer, you know they've played that game before, and and it's particularly damaging. So I don't I don't see that happening, particularly not now that we've had this polling out over the weekend saying that that Labour is likely to lose. The more the narrative is that the party is going to lose the by election, I, I I think in a way the less pressure on the leader after the result because it's sort of already. It's already at the front of people's minds that this that this is a possibility, if you see what I mean. But perhaps that is far too optimistic for for Keir Starmer, and there will be sort of full scale revolt uh, if they lose. I mean, the problem for Labour is that losing Hartlepool was one thing. It was um, it was it was sort of uh, verifying a demographic trend that has been covered widely and was one of the stories of the twenty nineteen election, the general election. Whereas in Batley, there will be a great deal of rancour from from different parts of the party because they, well, we'll see what happens. But it may be that they have lost some support among the ethnic minority voters that they used to be able to rely on. And um, there's been this polling that's shaken up the Labour Muslim network that have seen that they're losing uh, popularity that they usually have among Muslim demographics um, and there is a sizable Muslim vote in this seat. So, you know, it, they could be getting that kind of um, calls for Keir Starmer to go or, or expressions of disillusionment in his leadership from different parts of the party. So, you know, you, you start get, seeing a situation where Keir Starmer is, is isolated.
2: I realise, and this shows the ways my brain has been fundamentally broken by too many years of doing political journalism, then I realise my initial overwhelming reaction to this question is like, yeah, well, he's not going to go. It's it's not going to happen. There is no alternative candidate in the PLP. Broadly, essentially, if you think about the Labour Party as an organisation of of thirds, right, there's the left of the party, the centre of the party, which is where um, Keir Starmer's expressed politics, although... One of the things that Labour MPs are anxious about is their increasing concern that Keir Starmer doesn't really have politics, and then there's the right of the party. Broadly, to get the number of signatures for a vacancy, you need to have annoyed two of those tendencies, and you need to have annoyed them to the point where they are more concerned about getting rid of you than power going to one of the other two-thirds. And basically, Keir Starmer has, has failed to do that. As a, a Corbynite MP said to me this morning, they said, well, just look at this. They said every time Keir's under pressure, they said some moron on Twitter slags off Angela Rayner. And they just said, well, that splits. See, if you think about the people who got uh, Becky Long-Bailey on the ballot, and unless you can get all of those people to go up the hill of signing the petition, you ain't got a challenge from the left... They said, if people can't behave themselves enough to go, oh, actually, Angela Rain is the candidate, they said, so So we're not... They said, yeah, we're not going to be able to mount our own operation. The right of the Labour Party doesn't have a candidate, right? Yeah, I mean, the fact that their last candidate was Jess Phillips, who's not on the right of the Labour Party, kind of gives you a clue of, of, of the sort of problems they would have of fronting someone up. And the centre of the Labour Party's candidate is Keir Starmer. And although lots of them are going, oh... I'm quite angry about what happened in the reshuffle and you know, I'm really worried about a bunch of things. They also know that there's no way for them to disassociate at the speed that they would need to do so. So the weird thing is is actually I think Hartlepool ultimately yeah, I mean I'm with without the relief of, of being able to talk about a party which parties who don't believe that the world revolves around them um yeah I mean ultimately when you had it was like it was like if there was a moment on Friday when I just when I really had to fight there it's just like please guys don't why do you have to intrude on on everything when yeah they started doing the whole like you know this this terrible performance in Cheshire Amersham means it it means nothing about Kistama, guys. It it, it it means, yeah, I mean, the person who had this previous terrible record of Labour Labour worst by-election performances was John Smith in 1993 um, in the Newbury by-election. Like, this is all to do with the Lib Dems having a well-run machine, something which the Labour Party could maybe consider doing at some point, just just an idea, just throwing it out there. But the weird thing is, is actually, um, Batley and Spen, I think, um, and I think to be honest, the preservation poll we've seen is likely to be Underestimating George Galloway, because the problems constituency, well, the problems all polling tends to have is uh, oversampling of overeducated, overengaged polls, um, people in their samples, and even although Cervation got the headline result right in Hartlepool, they had classic signs of that problem, not least uh, massively overestimating the number of people who were going to vote for the Northern Independence Party. And when you have Galloway, a man who is adept at winning the votes of not particularly well educated, particularly first generation British Muslims, particularly in terms of the leader's office, big blunders, which are, yes, silence on Israel-Palestine, but also the change they made in the policy towards Kashmir, this idea that a salvation constituency poll is going to have... A sufficient number of Gujarati men and women in their fifties and sixties who usually vote Labour. I just think, come on, pull the other one. It plays the red flag. Like, so if if, if anything, I think they will be undersampling the Galloway problem, and that is very much the uh, experience of uh, every MP I have spoken to who has a good experience of you know of of dealing with with Galloway type politics, in their own patch. They're like, there's no way that they. OK, the observation's got an accurate number on that. Now, I and they might be wrong, but I just think that all points towards um, a very difficult situation for Labour. But the Batley and Spend by-election is, in a variety of ways, just a series of quite damning reflections on Keir Starmer and his office, right? One, this by-election shouldn't be happening. Don't allow Tracy Brabin, who holds a marginal seat... Yeah, who, yeah, to, step to, to step down just don't uh, allow her to run right? just yeah. just prevent her getting on the shortlist. and especially
0: that because that um, originated from an early not very controversial reshuffle where she as a f- former Coronation Street actress was moved away from the shadow culture brief which was the only job that she really loved and wanted I think that she was just so annoyed to the, that she had lost that job I don't know what the reasoning for it was no one can really explain it it looks as though just you know they fancied giving Joe Stevens a job and didn't think about losing Tracy Raven from the Shadow Cabinet in that way. Yeah, I think she was just annoyed about that. And then yet at no point did they do some sort of internal management to to get her another job. So she literally went as far as running for a West Yorkshire mayor. Oh.
1: <laughs> That's the Labour Party equivalent of a flounce. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but I mean, I also just think even if, because um, yeah, yeah, the thing you'll definitely hear from lots of Labour members is exactly as Alva related people going, it doesn't make sense. She was perfectly shadow culture secretary. She'd backed care, and now look what's happened. But I think even if she'd been shadow culture secretary and she said, I really want to be the inaugural mayor of West Yorkshire, if you are horizon scanning, you go, hmm, do you know what I think we do not want to do in the first summer? Because at the point in that she was running, this was the point where the first set of vaccines had started to receive approval, right? You should be like, hmm, do we want a by election in these circumstances? I'm going to go for no. No, we do not want to buy election. And then you just say, Tracy, you'd be a great mayor. Unfortunately, we're not going to let you be shortlisted. And if you try and get yourself shortlisted, we'll make your life miserable in a thousand different ways. That is being an effective... That That's what the Lib Dems would have done, right? Like Because they're a serious operation. And you know, then you have the added thing of, you know, the Labour Party's um, change of position on Kashmir, I just think is, is wrong politically uh, because... One, although, yes, they lost votes because of their position on it in 2019, it was the same as the position the Conservatives had, the party which opportunistically in some local areas ran against it. So, one, changing the national national policy was, is not going to solve it. But also, that position was right. Basically, right, what is the Labour core? It is the ethnic minority and uh, big city working class and social liberals. Hmm, What does having a position where you go, "Mm, we think Kashmir should have a say in its future? What are the two groups that it annoys? Liberals and, you know, broadly, some of the voters, but particularly the ones who are most likely to be voting Labour still, you know, from that part of the world, who have parents from that part of the world, just don't do it. And all of those avoidable mistakes are coming together in Batley and Spent. There isn't an alibi for the Labour leader. Yeah, you know, for the operation and for the decisions that he ultimately signed off and led to them being in this position. But ultimately, because there's no candidate and also zeroing out, I just think it would be a pretty stupid time for the Labour Party to change its leader, despite the fact that, I don't know if you've noticed this, Alva, but this belief has gone through the PLP, like, you know, I don't know, like a like a virus, um, that there's going to be an election in 2022. They just won't get off it. I keep talking to Labour MPs and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Your seat's been dismembered. They're like, oh, it doesn't matter. There's going to be an election next year. And it's like, no, there's, there's not, lads. Why do you think this? It's odd because you, whenever you talk to a Tory MP and go, do you think this is true? They're just like, if the prime minister tried to do an election in 2022, I personally would march on down. You know, someone said, you know, that I, I asked someone and they said, they said if the Prime Minister wants to meet the same end as Julius Caesar, he could suggest to us that we should have an election next year. But seeing as I don't think he does want the parliamentary party to kill him, that won't happen. But yeah, they won't get off that idea. Now, if so if if, if they were right, then it would be a good idea to revisit the leadership question in January 2022. But what is the point of, you know, it's kind of to revisit the argument and we kept making, well, I say we, obviously, there we're a variety of opinions around this table and wherever Anusha's laptop is located about whether or not um, it was right to switch out Annalise Dodds for Rachel Reeves. But the big argument for not doing it was you can't do that a second time. So don't do it until you, until you do it. And you've got to make sure that you're doing it at a time where you're getting great headlines for it, which I think we can safely say they did not do. And you can't change a leader more than once in a parliament. It's a waste of the new year of the sort of the new leader bounce of you know who's this fresh new face. Um so I think it would just be a mistake. I do have I think it is a slightly different by election in than although yes, um the government is still enjoying the fact that economic confidence is at record highs, although there are lots of reasons to believe yeah. If this makes sense, the vaccine bounce stuff does I think still apply. It just isn't why they are going to lose Batley and Spen. It's kind of the reverse of, you know, did they make loads of mistakes in Hartlepool? Yes. Is Paul Williams why they lost? No. Whereas with this one, it's kind of the reverse, I think.
0: And we also should add, while we're talking about the future of Keir Starmer's leadership, that there have been some changes in his top team that were snuck out on Friday night at the point when most people, not me, um, were watching the England-Scotland game. Um, So yeah, Ben Nunn, his Director of Communications, is leaving. And Morgan McSweeney, the Chief of Staff, is also going or moving role. Longstanding listeners will know that we had Lots of strong opinions on this, on the the leadership of the top team or on on Keir Starmer's team after Hartlepool, and the, you know there was a lot of resentment among Labour MPs, feeling that that shadow cabinet reshuffle scapegoated all the wrong people, and that the people who had made the decisions around the Hartlepool by election weren't facing any consequences, whereas Angela Rayner and pe- and other people were taking the hit for it. I mean, I suppose it's it's not going to come as a surprise to people listening to this that probably this move will be welcomed by a lot of Labour MPs and um, who've been kind of pushing for it for a while, and will and it will perhaps be received as a sign that Keir Starmer has listened belatedly to some concerns about the advice that he was getting. What do you think, Stephen and Dinesh?
2: I mean, a Labour MP uh, said to me, maybe the week after the uh, Reina reshuffle, they said the good, the good thing about Keir that can be an asset is they said, you know, he's a pretty normal guy in lots of ways who they said doesn't have politics like, you know, like most people in this building. And they said, and that can be an asset. They said, how of course, the problem is he doesn't seem to have politics as far as I can tell. And he's appointed a bunch of people who aren't very good in his core team. And his uh, pro- his response to people saying they weren't very good was to uh, was to try and fail to fire them. And they just said, "Look, and all leaders learn on the job." But the problem is, this one doesn't seem keen to do so. And I spoke to them when I was doing my sort of pre-column. Uh, So to, you know, to let people see how the magic works. Once I have pitched a series of column topics to our editor, uh, Jason says, do this one, or goes, these are all terrible, do something else. And then I start phoning around uh, MPs to talk to them about the themes that, um, and I don't know why I pronounced themes in such a weird way there. But I I spoke to this MP again, and they said, well, look, these people going is a sign that he's able to learn on the job. They said, whether he's able to learn on the job to reach election winning or, you know, or even, you know, seat-gaining trajectory. They said, that's a question for 2022, 2023. Um, But I think you're exactly right. Him taking this action has, I think, reassured Labour MPs who kind of felt that they weren't listened to by the office, that the office was uh, unresponsive. The complaint I've heard more about this office than any other is basically people saying, I don't understand what it is that I need to say to be loyal. The average Labour MP just wants to be able to, when they write in their local newspaper or they go on TV or they go on local radio, to understand what it is that the thing they are doing to get more votes so they, have, they can stop, you know, bumming around in opposition, unable to help their constituents, just feeling a bit miserable. They just want to know what it is they need to say and do. Yeah. And the thing they find very frustrating is they feel they don't know what it is they need to say and do. I think if there had been no sign that there was going to be change in that tea court team, I think then the phone calls we've been having and the conversations we've had with Labour MPs would be very different. They wouldn't be going, oh no, what's the point of doing it now? They wouldn't be going, oh, well, we don't know who we'll get next. They'd be going, he refuses to change and he has to go. Labour MPs have taken these exits as a sign that Keir Starmer is willing to learn on the job mm. and that means then he will be given time to do so.
0: And I think it's probably also also worth appreciating that, as you say, Keir Starmer got very, very annoyed when people criticised these people in his office because they don't have public-facing roles like any MPs would do. And so I think he always felt that they were a bit off limits and that it was a bit sort of nasty and undignified to be attacking them when he's, you know, he's the big boss man and he takes responsibility for everything. I think it's
1: significant, the Morgan McSweeney move, because you'll remember from the aftermath of the Hartlepool by-election, a lot of the Labour left and the kind of Corbynite voices in the media were, were complaining that Keir Starmer had taken too much advice from Peter Mandelson, who is seen as, a, as an ally of of Morgan McSweeney. And then when I spoke to him, he said that he hadn't actually sp- spoken to Keir Starmer since 2018. So, you know, not sure how much advice they were actually taking from him there. But I think that this particular move of, of that particular person w- might help Keir in terms of some of the MPs on the left of the party as well.
0: This is quite big for him personally given the kind of the the understanding that you develop of him as a character from covering it closely I think that this will be quite a big leap to get rid of people that he feels personally very very loyal to so Ben Nunn the director of communications has been his media aide for a very very long time has basically been with him the whole time in politics and Keir Starmer was very loyal to him and keeping him on and giving him that big promotion to director of communications when he became leader I mean it seems strategically to be the right decision in terms of managing the relationships with the rest of the party as well as managing the relationship between the Labour team and the media and and everyone else and managing all of those stakeholder relationships is probably strategically the right call but I think it probably is just worth appreciating that this is quite a big moment of growth for Keir Starmer (laughs)
2: been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Alva Ray, and our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan. Our music is still devil with the devil. It's licensed under Creative Commons. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do remember to like and subscribe.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com style for free shipping. And 365 day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So, can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance is completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.